0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 29th, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. The share ID for Friday, June 27th, is 6566. That's 6566. This morning, A Vision for You presents, we had but two alternatives. Once you've accepted step one, admitting that you're powerless over food and that your life has become unmanageable, you've realized that to continue compulsive overeating means disaster. So does continuing to rely entirely on yourself, to stop compulsive overeating. Now, if you already know that you can't rely on yourself, then your choices narrow down to either relying on some power greater than yourself or being doomed to a compulsive overeater's miserable existence or death. These aren't easy alternatives to face, but they're the only ones you've got. If you truly want to recover from the illness of compulsive overeating, you've got to have a spiritual experience. Here to speak further on this topic this morning is Mary F., a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Sarasota, Florida, and is dedicated as a messenger of Overeaters Anonymous. And welcome to the line, Mary F., Thank
1: you very much, Leah. Can you hear me okay?
0: Indeed. Thank you.
1: Thank thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mary. I am a compulsive overeater and very, very grateful to be with you this morning on the line. Thank you, Leah, for inviting me to speak and I consider it a great honor and a great opportunity to share the miracles that I have received and experienced in my years in Overeaters Anonymous. And I could not be more grateful to be with you today. Um, I would just like to start with the serenity prayer. And um, so I'm just going to say that. You can say that along with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I'm going to start my timing here for about 55 minutes, and um, then we'll do the questions and answers after that. I am a recovered food addict or a compulsive overeater. I have been coming to Overeaters Anonymous since 1985. I went to my first meeting back probably in 84 or 85, I am a survivor of relapse. I have spent some years in relapse between when I came and 1990. I have not found it necessary to pick up um, and eat compulsively since January 21st of 1990. That's a little over, about 24 and a half years, and that is not due to me. That is due to this miraculous program of Overeaters Anonymous, the 12 Steps, that have led me to a relationship with a power greater than myself that has enabled me one meal at a time, one moment at a time, one day at a time, one year at a time to be abstinent and to abstain from compulsive overeating. And this is a miracle of this program, and I am immensely grateful. My top weight was 340 pounds. That's the weight that I know of when I went into treatment for the first time In 1986, I have been able um, to maintain about between 195 and 200 pound weight loss now for about 22 years, and that is a wonderful, 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 wonderful gift of this program because I can do so many things today that I could not do when I weighed 340 pounds, but I will... Today, during this time that I am with you, show you hopefully, and help you to see that that is just one benefit of what I have found through living these last 24 years in the steps, traditions, and concepts of the of Overeaters Anonymous. And um, today, my topic was we had but two alternatives. And I'm going to primarily share my story because I have not had that opportunity, or I've not taken that opportunity yet on the vision for you. Um, I spoke another time in December. I was on the abstinence panel, um, which was delightful. Um, But today I'm going to share, focus more on my personal story. And on page, the, the two pieces of literature that I will be using today primarily, are the AA Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Those are my two primary sources of literature and really the ones that I read most, most consistently on a, on a weekly and if not daily basis. So on the bottom of page 25 in the chapter, there is a solution in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The bottom paragraph speaks to this, we had but two alternatives. And it says, If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other was to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Well, in my story today, you are going to hear that I have spent time in both of those alternatives, a lot of time wanting to blot out, to go on to the bitter end, the consciousness of my intolerable situation, and then what happened that I sought spiritual help and what has been the result. What I want to share with you is my story. I don't speak for OA as a whole. Um, I, uh, I, am, I owe my life to Overeaters Anonymous. I um, also want to share that I may kind of go in and out of my story and interject a lot from the literature because that is so much of my story. I believe that I was born with an abnormal uh, relationship with food. I um, From a very early age, I was overweight. I started probably being um, abnormally overweight by the time I was about four or five years old. By the time I was in third grade, I weighed almost 160 pounds. And that is less than I weigh today as a 61-year-old adult woman. I went on my first diet when I was in eighth grade. My mother took me to... The my doctor and I was put on diet pills, and I was able to lose um, about thirty pounds, and I was able to participate in a class trip that um, that I went on with my with some students and, and some classmates of mine. I think there was, that was the reward that my father offered me at that time. Um, if I were to lose weight and I did I lost about 30 pounds and I went on my I got my little reward and came back and I think I started eating again I don't know how many times I have been taken to the doctor or given by a doctor a thousand calorie diet here here's a thousand calorie diet Mary just go and do it and I don't know once that I was ever able to do that after that first attempt when I was in eighth grade. And um, after that, I, I was given these diets. I was handed these sheets of paper and told to go and do what was impossible for me to do. I had, as the disease progressed, my periods of control got shorter and shorter. My second diet uh, that I remember was when I was in high school, and I joined one of the major weight loss centers for the first time, as um, I was just going into my senior year of high school, and I weighed in at 290 pounds. And I I don't mention specific weight loss programs by name. I think they are an outside interest. Um, out uh, and and. I think that those programs work for, for normal people. But for people like me, if you were as seriously alcoholic as we were, as it says here in the, in, on page 25, if you were as seriously compulsive overeater as I was, that those programs just didn't work for me for the long haul. I will tell you that I have gained and lost 100 pounds five different times in my life. So I have had success with those programs but they didn't solve the real problem because the real problem is, as described in the literature, is that I have an obsession of the mind and an allergy of the body and that I am different from a normal person. Normal people do not experience this two twofold illness that's described so well in our literature. And, so I I joined that diet uh, I started that diet club when I was a senior in high school. By the by the time I graduated, I was down to about 170 pounds. However, nothing changed in me um, except my my uh, weight, except my size. I still thought of myself as being 340 or uh, 290 pounds. I still saw myself being really heavy. I still had cravings and obsessions and thoughts about food that were abnormal. And what happened was after I had lost that weight without cheating one time during that whole period, I bought into the delusion, the belief again, that I could control my food. And I decided that I would just – go off of my diet for a period of time, and then go back on it again when I when I wanted to. And so I did. And over that summer, I started to gain weight again, not knowing that even at that age I believe that I was a progressed compulsive overeater unable to control um, my food and stop when I wanted and start when I wanted. I believe that I am addicted to certain foods, um, primarily, those foods for me are sugar, flour, and volume. I, um, I, I have to weigh, I, I choose to weigh and measure all of my food today because I am addicted to volume. I can't eat certain foods in, moder- in moderation at all, and all kinds of foods can create um, an obsession for me and a craving for me when I eat to excess volume. I um, <clears throat> I tried many things. Like I said, I tried many weight loss programs. I tried fasting. I tried not eating at all. I tried um, telling myself, giving myself permission to eat anything I wanted, thinking then that I wouldn't want to eat it. And I want to tell you, <laughs> it never worked for me. I I remember eating chocolate chip cookies thinking that one day I'm going to get sick and tired of chocolate chip cookies. Well, it's never happened, and I don't think it will ever happen. I am not wired in that way. Maybe that works for some normal people, but it doesn't work for me. I have tried prayer. I have tried spiritual cleansing through a type a type of exorcisms. I have tried... Uh, people praying over me, um, praying that the 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 evil gluttony would be would be rid from me because I always thought that I was just a glutton. I always thought that I was just a sinner, and that if I could just ask God to remove me from this sin, from from sin, and if I could. Just restrain myself enough and not indulge in that that I would be okay I felt so badly about myself because I couldn't stop I knew that I was was eating in a way that wasn't right and I and I felt like I was just um, I, I remember my calling myself a flat a fat blob of humanity I was just a blob of humanity, particularly, I felt that way when I was growing up um, so obese as a child and as as an adult. It was very, 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 very painful. I have tried acupuncture. I have tried hypnosis. I have tried all man- drink like, drinking lots of water before I before I ate my meal, and nothing would work for any long period of time. I would have uh, periods of reprieve periods of self-control and then be completely out of control. What I didn't understand at the time was that I cannot eat certain foods in moderation and that parallel with my insane with my sane thinking also always ran an insanely trivial excuse to pick up the food. And then I would be thinking I was okay and then some insane thought would cross in my come across my mind and I would be out again eating. This is described on page 37, um, where it's talking about insane thinking. And it said, you may think that this is an extreme case. we have been talking about a gentleman named Jim. To, um, to us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the circumstances. But there was always the curious phenomenon that, parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. And for me, it was the first bite. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out the next day would be, we would be asking ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened again. I had such an insane battle in my mind. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, no, I can't. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to lose weight. I can't do this. I can't eat one. Oh, yes, you can, Mary. Just have one. You can have one. It's okay. I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. And the insanely... Tri- in- trivial excuse would always win out. And why is that? Because the insanely trivial excuse at that time was more powerful in my mind than my rational thinking. I did not believe that I had a disease that would that would cause me to eat more once I picked up. I did not believe the lies that my disease told me. I could not bring to my mind with sufficient force the memory of the previous binge. And this is talked about so clearly right on page 24, the, the page before we talked about the, um, the two alternatives. At the top of the page it says, that the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We were unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first bite our first drink. And this paragraph speaks so strongly about my experience. I had lost the power of choice. Now, does that mean that every single time I picked up I ended up in a full-blown relapse and remorseful and hating myself it doesn't because it says here we were unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force there were times when I I could stop there were times when I did believe no I don't want to do this today but At certain times, I couldn't. The suffering and the humiliation of a week ago or a month ago, or for me, it could have been hours ago, were insufficient to stop me every time. I would succumb once again, and I would be in the horrid, horrid, um, intolerable situation um, of being down in the food again. When I was, um, so this, pro- this progressed uh, through my teens, through my 20s. Um, it, even, even in my very early 20s, I was diagnosed with um, stage 3B Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymph nodes. And uh, most people, when they're going through I was given three years to live when I was 19, I guess 20 years old. Um, And most people, when they go through cancer treatment, they lose weight. But I didn't. I turned to food. I turned to food and I gained 40 pounds during my cancer treatment. And um, the doctors were amazed. They couldn't believe that I did not lose my appetite. But for me, food was my solution. Food Food was my solution. I didn't go to a higher power. Um, I've heard it said that the person or the thing that we go to for comfort in our times of need, in our times of most pain, that or that person or that thing is our higher power. And for me, food had long ago become my higher power, particularly sugar, flour, fatty products. That was what I went to when I needed comfort. And um, I... Uh, Excuse me, just one moment please. Um I had to just quiet somebody here in my home. Um the uh when I was in in my early 30s, it got it got so intolerable. I could not stop binging. I was gaining weight so rapidly. I had gained after my mother passed away, um I gained 80 pounds in the first six months after after she died. Again, it was turning to food to deal with life. Um, my solution. Um, in the in my mid 30s, I went to my O A to O A for my in the early 30s. I went to O A for the first time. I thought it was kind of um, insane. I didn't really like it a whole lot. I, they, there was a lot of talk about God. Um, I. I had tried God, I thought God had failed i um, I wasn't very interested in it um, but I did go to the to the to the uh to the um, weight loss program that was across the hall and at that one over the weekend I had gained um or oh, from one week to the next I had gained seven pounds one time and I was put a piggy sign was put around my neck that I was supposed to wear during the meeting and then and then bring it back the next week. And, you know, that seemed to fit for me. That, that seemed to be what I thought about myself, that I was just a pig. And, um, and it was, it, honest to God, that was in, reinforced by the people around me, people who said things like, Mary, you're an adult. Just put the fork down. What's wrong with you? Um, you know what to do. Just stop eating um why why are you doing this have and then and then at the same time they'd be saying have one just have one and i and i it just felt crazy and insane to me but um so in but in in 1986 i went back to an oa meeting and at the time they were handing out food plans and i picked up a food plan that um that i tried for for one day and i couldn't stick to it for one day i I just I just couldn't do it. And on the back of it, there was a phone number at the time, um, and I called it, and it was a treatment center. And I didn't know that. This is what I this is the the number that I called. I said, you know, I my name is Mary. I can't um, stop eating. I need to be locked up. Do you know where I could go? And that's exactly what I felt. I needed to be locked up. And they said that I had you know called the right place. Anyway, I ended up going. Oh, this I ended up going away to treatment for seven weeks. And while I was there, I learned a lot about my disease. I learned a lot about the 12 steps. I learned a lot about weighing and measuring. And um, I got out of there after seven weeks. I went in at 340 pounds. I got out. I had lost some weight. And I started working a very rigorous OA program. And I started working the steps. I got a sponsor. I was committing my food I was weighing and measuring my food. I was doing all the things that I knew to do. I was making phone calls, going to meetings, being of service, um, working with other people. Eventually I was sponsoring, and I was doing all the things that I thought would, would um, that other people were telling me to do. And I, w- and I had great success. And I was losing weight, and I was beginning to feel um, more, um, at home in my body and more, more um, better about myself, and I was being of service to other people, and I was working the steps, and I was starting to, make, to have this, um, this psychic transformation that is talked about in the big book, and I was, I was doing really well. And um, thinking slowly after a year or so, probably about a year and a half, Of clean abstinence and really rigorous working of the OA program, my thinking started to be to change again. And I believe the last thing we do in a relapse process is pick up the food. And so in 19, probably about 1987, 1988, I started what I call chipping away at the program. And it wasn't with the food, it was chipping away with my disciplines. Oh, I wouldn't go to as many meetings. Oh, I uh, wouldn't make as many phone calls. Oh, I let up a little bit on my step work. Oh, oh well, I didn't wasn't really honest with my sponsor about something. Oh, I um, another one was a big one for me was um, I'm such a volume addict, and I didn't have to weigh and measure my food in a restaurant. So I didn't weigh and measure. I don't believe everybody has to do that, but I do. So I started weighing, not weighing and measuring some of my meals in restaurants. But I wasn't eating sugar and flour, so there I'm still, I'm still absent. I told myself, and um, this was long before. This was before I started. I really picked up the food. This was chipping away at the foundation of my recovery, of of the recovery that I had been able to. To get here in um, in uh, Overeaters Anonymous, and I um, chipping chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and finally the foundation collapsed, and and fi- and there and then I ended up full blown, face down in the food again, and it was like, what happened? What did I do? What went wrong? And it was only in hindsight, by really taking an inventory of what went wrong that I was able to see what I had done. I had started thinking that I was a normal person again. I had started thinking that I could eat and not eat at that point because eating wasn't in my mind, that I could behave like a normal person, that I didn't have to do these disciplines, that I'm, I'm so recovered I don't need to do this. And I was experiencing a level of recovery that was beautiful, But I started thinking, I started making it less of a priority in my life. I live my life today by saying that I need to build my life around my recovery rather than my recovery around my life. In the beginning, I did. But then life started becoming, well, I have to be able to do this and I want to be able to do that. And I can lighten up on these disciplines that have literally saved my life. And I did. And I spent the next four years, three years, in full-blown relapse, miserable, defeated, depressed, suicidal, hopeless, despairing. Uh, the big book, or the AA 12 and 12, has some of the words in here. Literal hell, absolute humiliation, Um uh, insane urge, um, um, fatal progression. Um, the horrible nature of my disease was in my face, and I couldn't. I couldn't face it. I experienced just the humiliation and the destructiveness of this disease. And during that time, I tried many diets again. I went. Um, Tried many weight loss programs again. I tried OA again, in and out, back and forth, therapy. Um, I was in therapy uh, weekly, um, but not being honest with with my therapist. I would binge on the way there, go in there, say I was doing okay, binge on the way home. I was desperate. I tried everything imaginable. And once again, I had lost about 60 pounds. I had joined a weight loss program. I lost about 60 pounds. I got to the magic 200 pounds again. And on December 7th of 1989, I decided that I could have one piece again, that, um, that I had lost 60 pounds. I had gotten down to the 200 pound magic mark. And this insane thought came to my head again. Mary, you can have just one. Just one. Just one piece. So on December 7th of 1989, I remember the day I picked up one piece of pie, fully convinced that I was going to be able to stop again. And I couldn't. I couldn't, not for one day. Not for one day. And I binged every day. Until January 20th of 1990. I binged for 42 days and gained 56 pounds, completely out of control, completely hopeless, completely despairing. and I could not stop. My periods of where I talked before about having times where I could bring it to my mind, at certain times I could bring my to my mind sufficient force, I couldn't. By now, the disease, The phenomenon of craving was so strong in me. The phenomenon of craving that's described in the doctor's opinion was so strong in me that I could not stop not for one meal. Now, when I took that one bite, did I think that that was going to happen? Absolutely not. I believed the lie that I was going to be able to stop again. No one could have told me that I would spend 42 days gained fifty six pounds out of control during that time i knew that i couldn't stop and i and i thought life is not worth living the alternatives that i were facing was facing either life without the food or life um, with with the food was unbearable to me and i decided that i would eat until i died i had a very conscious choice that i would eat until i died my husband at the time and i had my entire funeral planned, what I was gonna wear, what songs that mm. were gonna be sing sung, who was gonna do my funeral, who was gonna be the minister, every detail was planned and I didn't care. I truly did not care. I welcomed death at this time. I was thirty seven years old and I welcomed death. I was done. I had battled this disease long enough. I'm done. Life is not worth living. I cannot live in this battle. I was battle-weary. And yet somehow there was this little tiny glimmer of hope in me, and it had to have been a power greater than myself because there was nothing inside of me that I knew that had any willingness to keep on living, to any willingness to fight, any willingness to do this one more moment. But something inside of me said, "Mary, call the treatment center that you were in. Call again." And um, I had been—I spent some time with another friend of mine in an OA, and she had encouraged me to to just try one more time. My husband at the time did not believe, not support it. Um, You've already done that. You've already been there. You know, you know what to do. Just do it. You—you're not a child. Just put the fork down. Just do it. And, you know, I used to complain and, and, and holler at him, you don't understand, you don't understand. But the truth is I didn't understand either. I kept saying to myself, Mary, just do it. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why can't you just stop? And um, uh, so I was, I was, I didn't understand this disease any more than anyone around me did. And because I thought that I could just stop as well and that I should be able to. But on January twentieth, 1990, I got on an airplane and I flew to a treatment center again where I had worked with this therapist before. And I went into treatment and I did everything that was told to me to do. And I got abstinent right away. I started weighing and measuring my food. It was a very 12-step model of treatment. I started committing my food. Um, I started doing um, the assignments right away. The assignments in this place were were on steps one, two, and three, and the beginning was just really deep, deep, rigorous step work, Looking step one work, looking at my powerlessness over food. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I started listing all the ways in which my in which I was powerless. How I had tried to control my periods of, of control, and then what happened, my consequences—physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, social, financial—I listed all of these things. I did, just incredible work, um, deep, rigorous first step work on ways in life in which my life was unmanageable, ways that I had tried to control. I did this incredible first step. Um, after you did all these assignments, you wrote this first step. It was like 45 minutes long to read it. I read it to the whole community. Everybody was like crying after I read it, and I said I could have done more. If I just would have tried harder, if I just would have tried harder, I know I could have done more. I was still thinking that it was me, that it was my self-will, that if, if I just tried harder, I could do it. And um, and the, the staff um, could see that I wasn't getting it. And in one of the staffing meetings, they said, you know, we think that Mary's going to die. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get that she's powerless over food. She thinks that she can control it, that there's more some self-will that she can exert, and then she can get control of this. And so what they did for me was they did a mock funeral for me. And... I was to um, write my goodbye letters to family, friends, everyone. And um, they uh, they didn't talk to me for a couple of days while I was there. Everybody walked around talking about how this disease had killed me. And, you know, I didn't care. I welcomed it. I didn't care. I wrote my goodbyes letters very seriously because I was ready to go. I was done and the day of my funeral there was um you know they came in with dark clothes on and quiet music in the room and and it was it was a it was a funeral and i said i read my goodbye letters i i i cried a little bit and um but i didn't i didn't care and after i got done doing all of that they laid me on the floor and covered me head to toe with a sheet completely covered me and I didn't care. I I laid on the floor and they said a little mock funeral thing for me and people came up and said goodbye to me one at a time and I had a few tears but um, I truly didn't care. I, I was ready to go and um, I was exhausted and yet somebody came up to me and knelt down next to me and pretended to be my little sister. Who is 20 years younger than me I was 20 when she was born And she was just like me And she was a food addict herself And somebody came up And pretended to be Jenny And my parents had both died When she was really young And, um, and then she said This little young person That came up and knelt down Pretending to be Jenny said You know mommy and daddy left me Already now you you've left me too And I just started sobbing and i got off of the floor i threw the covers back and got off the floor and picked up this bat and was banging and banging and banging about this at this at the disease and what it had robbed me of my whole life my whole life had been in in imprisoned to this disease and um i I did that, and that was incredibly, incredibly powerful. And and then through the course of the next few weeks while I was there, they kept telling me this part that I read about that being there is no return through human aid. And there's another part in the big book that says we were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And um, not a little bit hopeless, 100% hopeless. And they were telling me that I needed to develop a relationship with a power greater than myself and they were encouraging me encouraging me to get on my knees and to pray and um, I wasn't very interested in that I was I was pretty angry at God um, and but they kept telling me to get on my knees and pray morning and night and I don't think there's anything fab, you know anything you know special about getting on my knees but it was just a, a level of surrender and humility that i wasn't very interested in on page 43 is where it says uh, we are 100 percent hopeless apart from divine help and um but finally i said fine i'll get on my knees and i'll pray and i i got on my knees that night um finally after balking um for quite a while and um I uh, I don't want to offend any anyone and but I but I just said f you God Amen and I stood up and the next morning my prayer again was f you God Amen and I stood up and for many mornings and nights in a row that was my prayer and because I was really angry at God um, why how could I bow down humble myself before a God and think that this God is going to care for me. And even think of the concept of step three of turning my will and my life over to the care of God, um, of a higher power who had allowed so many painful things in my life. I was I was terrified of that. I I mean, what loving God would allow a child to be raised or to, to grow up so morbidly obese? What loving child? These these were my thoughts. What loving child? What loving God would allow? a 19-year-old woman to go through cancer treatment and become sterile? What loving God would allow me to be sexually abused by a minister? Um, What loving God would allow that I could turn my life over, would allow the pain that I had had? How could I trust? I've cried out and yelled out and and begged and pleaded for so many years for help from you, God, and and now – I'm being asked to 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 pray. I I was just it just didn't make any sense to me and everything in me revolted against it. But I was willing to follow the direction of um getting on my knees and asking for help. And so that was my prayer for many days and many nights, many mornings and many nights. And and uh, one day finally I said my little intro prayer there, and then I just started crying. And I said, God, if there's any hope of recovering, I need to have a relationship with you. I need to find a relationship with you. And I think that first prayer that I said was, was the most honest prayer I'd ever uttered in my life. And it was my truth. It was my truth. I couldn't, I couldn't come to a place of, you know, God, I, I love you, I need you, I want you in my life, when I had all of that terror, really. It was terror and anger um, at God. And, um, and today, you know, this 12-step program has just one day at a time brought me to a place where I do have a working, um, uh, loving relationship with a power greater than myself that has restored me to sanity. Another thing that happened when I was in the treatment center was that they knew that I was in huge denial that I had a physical illness. And um, they could get it that I just I thought it was just a matter of willpower. I didn't get that you know my body was different, my mind was different. It's just my will, you know. And so they gave me the the assignment to read the doctor's opinion in the big book three times a day, every day. Now most of you, who, if you've been spent any time on this Vision for You meeting, you are well aware and well familiar with the doctor's opinion. It's the big. It's in the. In, it's in the. Um, one of the begin- It's in the beginning of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was given this assi- the assignment to read this three times a day every day. And I did that for about nine months. And it eventually, eventually, eventually broke through my denial. I eventually got to see that I have an allergy to certain foods that I have a phenomenon of craving that is limited to people like me. Okay, when we were on page 25, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, okay, back to the doctor's opinion. Not a, it says this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So I am as seriously alcoholic i am as seriously addicted i do have this phenomenon of craving in my body that uh, that it that says that these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form or my addictive foods in any form at all because once the habit is once once we do it once i do it my self confidence, my reliance, my my upon human things, everything is just is is gone. It's um I'm I'm done. Um, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by the alcohol, this sense of ease and comfort um, that can come at once by taking certain foods into my body i had I was addicted to that. I was um, that's what happens in my body when I eat certain things and the the other aspect of that the doctor's opinion talks about that's the physical aspect where I cannot eat certain eat certain foods and that and that was so clear to me on when I had picked up on December seventh of nineteen eighty nine that phenomenon of craving was so strong in me that I could not stop. So I am convinced today that my body is different. But it took me a lot of readings of this book, of this chapter, to get that into my mind. And then that would be fine if I didn't have the obsession of the mind. We hear that so much on the Vision for You meeting that, you know, it's fine if I have the allergy and then I'm aware of it. I'm allergic to penicillin. But I want you to know I don't test it. I don't go in and say, well, today, give me a little penicillin. I think I'll be able to control it. I'll just call my sponsor. Give me a little penicillin. I'll just go to an extra meeting. Give me a little penicillin. I'll just, com- I'll just confess it. Give me a little penicillin. I'll just use my mind to overcome it. Give me a little penicillin. I don't. I don't. I have sane thinking around my allergy to penicillin, but I don't have sane thinking around my allergies to certain foods, or at least I didn't. And so I would succumb again. I would give in. And then the vicious cycle would start again. The phenomenon that I would give in to the thinking that I would eat, the phenomenon of craving would would, um, be in place. I would have a well-known spree, emerging remorseful, resoluting never to do it again, and then the whole thing would start over again. I'd I'd be suicidal. I'd be desperate. And the whole phenomenon of craving or the whole cycle would go on and on again. But in the doctor's opinion, it says what is, what is the solution um, at, at, at the very top of Roman numeral thirty one it says, "What is the solution?" And then they talk about um, a gentleman who had come to, who had come to Dr. William Silkworth, and he said, "The solution is that he accepted the plan outlined in this book. And he's talking about, of course, the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And what is the plan that he's referring to? Well, it is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the plan that that is outlined in this book so beautifully. And that is the other alternative. I think I've done pretty well describing what the one alternative was, going on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best as best I could, being willing to die for the food. And the other alternative was to accept spiritual help. Well, when this was first introduced to me, as I told you, I was very, very resistant. But eventually I started to believe that the people that were telling me this had something that looked much better than what I had. Back on page 4, let me see, 416 in the big book, it's a section of of, um, acceptance was the answer. It's it's a um, part in the big book, the chapter in the big book that we um, used to be called Dr. Alcoholic Addict, and uh, it's a part on acceptance that we read so much. But um, right before the... The paragraph before that, on page 416, near the bottom of the page, it said, It helped me to become convinced that alcoholism was a disease and not a moral issue, that I had been drinking as a result of a compulsion, even though I had not been aware of the compulsion at the time, and that sobriety was not a matter of willpower. The people of AA had something that looked much better than what I had, and I will just stop there and say the people around me had something that looked much better than what I had. There were people who were abstinent, who were not suicidal, who were who were gaining some um, respect, who were able to not eat compulsively, who were losing weight, who were not in obsession, who were not hiding, lying, cheating, stealing about food. They were sane. They had some sane thinking about about food. They were... Um, being of service to other people they had something that looked much better than what I had but I was afraid to let go of what I had in order to try something new there was a certain sense of security in the familiar I was really afraid to let go and to really try I had felt like I had failed so many times I felt like I was just just, it, it couldn't possibly work for me but somehow, somehow, I started to believe the people who were in these rooms, who were for whom it was working, and then I just clung to these people like my life depended it because it it does, you know that what tur- what started out as a flimsy reed I don't know where that is right at this moment but what started out as a flimsy reed became the my absolute anchor. I think that's in we agnostic someplace um but um it, it absolutely became exactly what i needed and i clung to it like my life depended upon it because it does and it still does and i want to tell you that was 24 years ago and i still do the same things almost exclusively i um i i I have a sponsor. I don't think in the last 24 years there's been a day that I have not had a sponsor. I, for me, have to – I I do commit my food every day very specifically. Um, I commit anything I eat before I eat it. I check in with my sponsor the next day as to whether or not I did that. I am addicted to certain foods. I weigh and measure all of my food without exception, and that means anywhere, anytime, any place. Why? Because I am addicted to volume. I do step work every single day of my life because it's the steps that have restored me to sanity. It's the steps that have taken that have removed the and continue to remove because I'm not perfect that I continue to work on every day the blocks that separate me from God, myself, and others. Um, I have, by the grace of God and the, and the incredible sponsorship and fellows in this program, been able to make amends and restore my relationships with other people. Um, uh, I have developed a trust and reliance upon my higher power that believe me is is still imperfect. I mean, I um I frequently forget to turn things over to God. My sponsor will say to me, "Oh, are you praying about that?" and I'm think, I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I completely forgot about that." <laughs> you know, thank you. <laughs> thank you for reminding me. I completely forgot about God. You know, I am like I am like, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, and I still consider myself such a student of this spiritual life. And I've had my weight off for a long time. It's so not about that today. But I am not so recovered that I do not need to continue to do these disciplines every day. I am restored. I am recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I am recovered from that today and i have to work on recovery every single day and not letting up on these on these spiritual disciplines um i i go to a, a lot of meetings i am of service i sponsor people i um i uh it just you know one day at a time and and i will tell you about 10 years ago even though i was rigorously absent I was I was pretty miserable in my in my life. I had a lot of things that were I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And um, I was I had a sponsor. I was um, cleanly abstinent, but I was slipping away, chipping away, like I talked at the beginning, with my spiritual program of action in regard to step work. I I was. Um, talking to my sponsor, but we were not in a process of daily step work, and I had joined a, um, a step writing group, and on um, I think we met every other Sunday night, and I had great intentions to do, um, to spend time working on, on, a, on my step, whatever I was on at the time, every day. I had great intentions, of writing on it, reading and writing on it every day and then coming into my step group and sharing about what had happened. But, you know, my great intentions, until I had the accountability of going to that step group either every Sunday night or every other Sunday night, I would usually be cramming and reading and writing right before I went to my step group. And um, I was becoming more and more miserable. And um, I knew that... I was restless, irritable, and discontent a lot of the time. And somebody that I knew that was um, really involved in a a rigorous step process kept telling me, you know, I would call and I would complain to her about about, um, somebody that was in my life and, and I was miserable and I would just complain about this person, complain about this person, and this person who was just really working the steps, she would say to me, Mary, you know what it says in Step 10 of the AA 12 and 12? It It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the problem, there's something wrong with us. And she would say that to me, and I would think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's nothing wrong with me. If you lived with this person, you'd be upset too. You'd be pissed all the time. You'd be angry. You'd be upset too. Don't tell me that it's thom- something's wrong with me. But then I'd call her a day or two later and I'd be complaining and bitching again about this person, what he's doing, and she would say, Mary, it is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. And eventually she told me that enough times, and I was in so much pain that I decided I needed to make a change, and that I needed to get involved in something that was um, uh, more disciplined around the step work. On page fifty-two, it described me coming into this process of of working more diligently around my step work. And again, I was cleanly absent, absent. I was clean absent with the food. Believe me, and i it was just a matter of time before I ended up in the food because I was restless, irritable, and discontent, and pissy all the time. Page 52, this was me about 10 years ago. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. That was me about 10 years ago, completely absent, completely thinking that I was just fine, but knowing that if I didn't get help, if I didn't surrender to something that I really didn't want to do, I was going to end up in the food again. So 10 years ago, I surrendered to a, to a deeper step process for me that's that's been miraculous i um it was it was one of those things accepting spiritual help this we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort and i i i want to tell you that part of the reason i resisted was because i didn't want to do that much work you know the things that i have to do for my recovery today take a lot of time um they um you know i i do a reading and Writing assignment every day, I'm in these steps every single day. Do I think everybody needs to do that? No. But my level of disease, disease around my thinking, around my spiritual life, that is what I require. Do I think everybody has to weigh and measure their, their food? No, but I do. That's the level of the disease that I have. I have to be very rigorous about these things in my disease, uh, in my recovery. And so I am... Um, I, uh, I, I have to do that. And I, I just, you know, do a lot with the tools every day because they show me a way to work the steps. I use the tools as a way to get support to work and live the steps, to call upon people how do you do this? How do you apply the steps in this, in this situation? Um, one of the greatest things that my sponsor has given to me is the third step prayer around every issue of my life. Like
0: <laughs> today,
1: when I was leading up to when I was going to be speaking today, I said the third step prayer around this. I said, God, I offer the vision for you meeting on Sunday to you to build with this meeting and to do with this meeting as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will with this meeting. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those on this meeting that I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do your will always. My sponsor has showed me a way, and the, my fellows have showed me a way to apply the, the steps in this program to every Aspect and the traditions to every aspect of my life, and my life is not perfect. And but I and the things that I do, I don't always want to do, but the benefits are so beautiful. And today, I need a level of discipline and accountability. Back when I had great intentions to do step work every day, when I didn't have that accountability that I had to. Read that to my sponsor every day. I didn't do it. I had great intentions. There are a lot of people who are more self-disciplined than I am. But I'm just one of those people that just needs a lot of accountability. And I'm grateful for it today. And, you know, I am free. I am free in my body. I am free. I don't have obsessions. I don't have cravings. I don't have um, the food is in its place. The food is in its place. And now my as long as I do that every day, my life I have an opportunity to walk in service and walk in an opportunity to show and to to help other people along this path. And it's it saved my life. There's nothing more that I desire in my life than to be able to, to grab hold of another compulsive overeater and say there is a way out, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share, and I think I'll pass with that. Thank you.
0: Mary, thank you so much for your service this morning. Thank you for sharing your miraculous transformation with all of us. Much appreciated. And we're going to share Mary's, contact information at the conclusion of this recording. Now let's open the floor for any questions you might have for Mary, and you can direct your questions to her by pressing star one to unmute. Hi, my name's Rasha and
2: I'm a compulsive overreater and I have a question for Mary. Please go ahead, hi, Mary. Wow, wow, what a wonderful, wonderful share. Um, you talked about uh how you do the program and that you do it to a very strenuous level. I was wondering whether um, how you sponsor people who perhaps don't need as strenuous a level as you do, or do you ask them to seek someone else who has a different program than you.
0: Thanks again.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Rosin, for the Is it Rosin? Rosin, for the question. Um, Rasha. Rasha, thank you. I generally sponsor people who, do, who, who are willing to do what I do um, or who need to do what I do or willing to do what I do because – I have found that it has worked so well for me and that's really all that I know to to pass on. Um I've I've done a lot of different um ways of working the steps and and I find that this is so that this works so well for me that that's the same way I sponsor.
0: Thank you Rasha for that question. Who's next? This is Barbara S. I have a question. Yes, good morning. Go ahead, Barbara. Mary, thank you very much for your story. It really speaks to me. You speak about doing reading and writing every day, and I was wondering if there is a program or a list of questions or how you determine that Daily step work. Well, thank
1: you, Barbara, for the question. There are a lot of options around that. There are so many things that one can do. Um, There are different questions that are available on different websites Um, for people. There are, I mean, literally you can pick up the big book and just start, start reading with someone else. Start reading and writing taking a, a sentence or a paragraph at a time um, with it's always helpful for me to work with someone else with that um, and to um, share my writing with other people and get feedback so there are a lot of other of, of ways to do that I, I am and going through through step four there are a lot of formats uh, that are available um, I, uh, of course, I use the format from the big book directly out of the big book to work step four, but there are there are a lot of questions and 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 things that you can get. If you if you like to talk to me about that privately, I'd be happy to do that. That would um, be
2: great.
1: But Thanks. on the but on uh, on um, on the on web the websites uh, different websites um, there are lots of materials available.
0: Okay, thank you. This is Haya. Thank you, Barbara. Haya, your turn.
2: Thanks, Haya. Hi. Hi, this is Haya Recover great, Grateful Recover Compulsive Eater, and Bulimic in Denver, Colorado. Thank you so much, Mary. And I can tell you I relate. <laughs> My question is, could you describe going to a little bit more depth of how you go through the process that's laid out in the big book that you so beautifully spoke about?
1: Well, thank you, Haya. Um are you speaking with regarding the fourth step, or what? In, what in particular?
2: Um, not specific. You said you go through the steps in a in a way, and I was wondering if you could perhaps. I mean, the fourth step is just one step, um, but if perhaps you can go through in a general way, um, how you go through the steps.
1: Sure. Let me try and answer that for you um, regarding the. Well, let me say that they, let me give you an example of what I've done recently. I um, was working on um, judgment and control. I I had a tremendous amount of judgment and control and still do. My sponsor um, at the time had me go through the AA 12 and 12 and work. The, and read the steps very specifically on my character defects of judgment and control. And I spent about a year doing this, going through the AA 12 and 12 on judgment and control. And I discovered a lot about myself um, that underneath my judgment and control was really a tremendous amount of terror and I, um, so that's one way in which I, I do work the steps around, around a particular issue. Regarding going through the big book, um, I think that, that by reading it, I, I, when I did my, my step work initially going through this, I did a, a particular set of questions. That took me through steps one, two, and three, and then when I got to step four, I went to the Big Book and did it, and did it according to the way it's laid out in the Big Book, and then just went through what to do into action into step into step five, and just went through it exactly that way, um, as it's as it's laid out in the Big Book. I don't know if that answers your question enough
2: sufficiently, up. Well, thank you, California.
0: Yes, go ahead, please. Chaya, thank you for the question.
2: Go ahead. Yes, hi, good morning, and thank you so much. And um, I have a question you talked about when you were so angry with God, and um, I was sexually abused by my father, and how to. I don't know if you can answer how to accept that, but also how do you stop that anger of God and really learn to trust? I know you said you were asked God to help you. How did you get through that and accept and feel the trust of God even though about your experience?
1: What was your name again?
2: Liz from California. Liz.
1: How did I get through the anger and come to a point of trust in God? And And I heard, Liz, that you had been Sexually abused. I'm really sorry that that was your experience. Um, well, it was. It was. It was being honest. First of all, I think um, it was being honest, recognizing that I had anger. Um, I still occasionally have anger at God, and I find that using the Big Book way of going through any resentment, whether it be at God, whether it be at myself, whether it be at someone else. Um, is very is a good way of doing it and looking at where am I angry, you know who am I angry at, why am I angry, what is it that they have done that's caused that's caused me to be upset, and then looking at what it affects, um, what are my basic instincts that it affects, and then praying, um, the the prayer in there, you know that I am I am. I am spirit, they are spiritually sick just the way I am spiritually sick, that we that I don't like what they've done, um, but that but that I am I am sick too. And I I sometimes think that, um, in a in a in a situation where like I was sexually abused by, by my my pastor, somebody that I that I went to for help and um it was very important for me to differentiate to separate my pastor from God because and the person that had sexually abused me from God because they are not the same and i was very angry at god for allowing some things that happened to me that were very 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 very, very painful and certainly you know caused me a lot of harm and and the person that that um perpetrated the abuse on me I was angry at them as well and when I was able to separate the two and um and then I could see that their the symptoms that that had been um our symptoms were, were some, you know, I had some of the same symptoms of hurting other people, of causing harm to other people. But where, where I talked about in the AA 12 and 12, when I was talking about it is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. What I got when I was reading that, so when I was really studying that, well, what could be wrong with me in a situation like this? What could be wrong with you, Liz, in a situation where, you know, you are, you have upset, you are disturbed because of abuse situation that happened to you in your past? That was, I would say, how could I be, it, yes, I am disturbed by what happened to me, But how is that, how am I, what is wrong with me about that? It's them. But what I got was what was wrong with me was if I didn't do the spiritual work to forgive and to accept that this is the way it was, what was wrong with me was I could end up using again. I could end up going back into the food. So I had to deal with my resentments. I had to. I didn't. I don't have a choice because resentment. The Big Book tells us that resentments are fatal, and that they separate us from God. They cut off, the, cut us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. So I have to find a way. And the big, and the Big Book outlines, and the AA 12 and 12 show us how to deal with our resentments, because for me. There is something wrong with me if I am harboring a resentment. If I'm disturbed about something, there is something wrong with me. Not only am I spiritually sick, I believe that I have you know i i the first thing that I was able to become aware of was that if what was what was wrong with me was if I don't deal with this, I'm gonna eat okay so that was what was the gateway that was the doorway to get me it get me into looking at. Where am I selfish self seeking dishonest and frightened? The doorway was Mary, you've got to deal with this, otherwise you're gonna end up eating. It's a number one offender. You know, more more people end end up drinking over over resentment than anything else. For us it is fatal. So that I got first, then with the help of a good sponsor, I was able to look at where am I selfish self seeking dishonest and frightened and my part in in har- harboring the anger and resentment that i had toward this other person was that i wasn't accepting that this is the way it is that this is you know for whatever reason this is this is what happened and i'm wanting things different i'm being selfish when i'm
2: wanting things other than they are i'm playing god I hope that was helpful, Liz.
0: Thank you, Liz, for the question. Hi, Anyone is, else? Hi, this is Kathy in Illinois. I have a question. Go ahead, Kathy.
2: Hi. Thank you, Mary, so much for, I so relate to your story. Um, you mentioned that we are left with two choices, um, going on to blotting out to the bitter end can't remember the words you used, or accepting spiritual help. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you get from, as you put it, being willing to die to being willing to accept spiritual help. Does that make well, sense?
1: Yes, it certainly does. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Um, how did I get from being willing to die to being willing to accept spiritual help, I think it was really hitting bottom. Um, Seeing that I was absolutely hopeless, left to my own devices, and that the only thing that was going to help me was a spiritual, was spiritual. That... um, I really got this it was told to me so many times over and over again, Mary, you are a hundred percent hopeless apart from divine help. And the divine help came to me in a form of human beings really. I don't think I can't say that it was any one human being, it was a combination of the power of of a power greater than myself. And it was for me. Um, this is one of the things I didn't I didn't share when I was sharing my story. It was for me being in a very safe place for an extended period of time, and being around people who could support me and love me and guide me. I needed. I was in treatment for that second time when I finally surrendered. I was in treatment for five weeks.
0: Mary, we lost you. Star 1 to unmute.
1: Oh, I I don't know how that happened, but I'm back. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> um when I I don't know if you heard that when I was in um the uh I was in treatment for 5 weeks and then I was in a halfway house for 3 months. So I was basically um, in a very supportive, loving environment for four and a half months. And I believe that the people, I left my job, I left my home, I left, I had no idea whether I was going to get my job back when I got back from treatment. It didn't matter if I was an abstinent and if I wasn't in recovery. It didn't matter if I had a job. And I, I went away for four and a half months, and I spent that time in treatment. And I believe that those people lovingly carried me until I could could get stable. Now, I think that I was accepting spiritual help when I surrendered to the level of support that I needed. I think that's different for different people. I needed to be in an environment where i was completely engulfed in abstinence food abstinence and in spiritual recovery in the 12 in the steps to be with people who were doing what i had to do what 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 worked for me to be with people now in the in back in the days of aa how they would do that is they went and they lived with one another You know, the guys in New York, they went out to um, Akron, and they lived with people for months. I mean, I think when Bill first went out to Dr. Bob, he went out there on a business trip, and he ended up staying for a few months, if if my memory serves me correctly. And that happened all the time. We don't hear about that as much in OA today, that people need to be with people if their disease has progressed such that, they are really struggling. And so for me, now this may sound a little different than what you're asking, but I think that this is the essence of it. I needed to be loved and nurtured in an an abstinent environment and shown the way of working the 12 steps with people. I was too vulnerable. And so to get to that, you know, place of being willing to die and to accepting spiritual help, to me it's a surrender issue. You know, it's like am I willing to surrender to the level of support that I need? And um, I think that, you know, when I'm in the food, my mind, my thinking is so skewed that, that suicide looks like a great option. Being willing to die looks like a great option. Being willing to die for sugar to me looked like a great option. And I want to tell you today I think really I really thought that I was convinced of that Kathy convinced convinced that I was will- that sh- that life would not be worth living without sugar that life would not be worth living without the food. And so to me I think that that the period that came from being willing to die to being willing to accept spiritual help was first of all surrender. I am beat I cannot do this alone. I have to I have to find a way of living and applying these 12 steps for my to my life if I hope to have any sort of a spiritual awakening that will solve my problem. And I cannot do that and keep doing the things I'm doing right now. I have to do I have to make a major transition in my life. I have to really be with people and surrender to the level of support that I need in order to begin this process.
0: Thank you, Kathy, for the
2: question. Who's next? This is Susan. May I ask a question? Yes, Susan, go ahead. Thank you both so much for your service and the really powerful message, Mary. Um you you yeah. spoke about the abuse and your anger at God and needing to distinguish God from that individual. And you may feel like you've already answered this question. I did hear the entire discussion, but I'm, I'm not sure if you answered this. How do you feel you've uh, been able to do work on or reconciling trusting God and perhaps it's simply by making that distinction between that individual and God. Um, But how have you worked on trusting God? And perhaps that comes up as you continue to work on judgment and control issues that I continue to work on. Thanks so much. I hope the question is clear. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you, Susan. So um, regarding the abuse and anger at God, how have I reconciled or worked on trusting God? (laughs) Well... (laughs) I think this is an ongoing process. Um, it, it came with time. It came with, um, I don't think I have complete and utter reliance on God, but I, but I do know that um, what I do think I am aware of today is that there is that deep sense of knowing deep within me. And, you know, where it talks in We Agnostics about the great reality deep within. Um, deep inside, I don't know if I can find that right now, but it's in We Agnostics. Reading through We Agnostics was very helpful to me. And um, when I, the, I know it says it's the great reality deep within, I spend time trying to connect. With that great reality deep inside of me, I don't understand it. I don't think that I have any understanding or concept of what or who God really is. All I can do, what I gather is, by reading the Big Book and the Twelve and Twelve, I gather a lot of spiritual um, uh, descriptions of a loving. God, uh, direction, um, God is called all manners of things, sense of direction, power, peace, great reality. Here it is on page 55. It, It says, we saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the final analysis, it is only there that he may be found. And I, I tend to, um, I can feel that part in my, in my gut. This is just for me. I can feel that part in my gut that I, that I relate with as being my higher power. That sense of knowing, that sense of peace, that when I focus on that, i I do have a sense of peace, and um honestly, Susan, I think a lot of it is um, um reading the literature um, really taking it in, really studying the literature um With an with an awareness of that part in my body where I connect with the great reality deep within, um, I don't by any means have a perfect trust and reliance upon God, um, but I do know that when I in the Big Book where it says, you know, we trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. I do have a sense of an awareness of that my finite self is insufficient. I, I can't, con, you know, one of the things I do when I'm going through the fear prayer is, you know, we ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to all he would have me be. Before I say that fear prayer when I'm, when I'm doing a fear inventory, I ask myself, you know how have you tried to control this fear mary how what are the ways that you've tried to control it has it worked no am i willing to trust infinite god rather than my finite self and then i say the fear prayer and um i think you know that it's i have an imperfect relationship um, I have an uh, a, not an imperfect relationship. I have an imperfect trust in a power greater than myself, but I have a growing trust in a power greater than myself. And um, another thing that I do is, again, this is all. It's to me, this whole process that I'm talking about right now is not a thinking process. It's a spiritual doing process on some levels. And so one of the other things that, that connects me with a power greater than myself is when I say the part in, um, in Step 11 in the big book where it says, um, it's in the uh, round page 80-something 80 here, 86, um, I uh, the part in page the middle of eighty six where it says on awakening let us think about the twenty four hours ahead and that whole section from there until till the end of the chapter, I that that is one of my prayers in the morning that whole section, and I have said that that from that the whole thing for so many so many times over the years that I have it memorized. And so I say it very prayerfully to myself on awakening. Let me think about the 24 hours ahead. I consider my plans for the day. And I do. I pause. I do that. Then before we begin, we ask God to direct my thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. And And I say this very prayerfully and there's something about doing this this form of what the big book calls this is in step 11 section so this is considered prayer and meditation this helps me to connect and to trust my higher power i believe some of the things in here i will intuitively know how to help how to how to handle situations that used to baffle me I um, no, that's that's in the 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 promises, but that but that we will um, we constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. That um, that you know we will the that the hunch or the occasional inspiration will gradually become a working part of the mind. That my you know my thinking will change. Um, I ask for freedom from self will. I think that the trusting, growing in trust in God has been by doing what it says in this book. Every time that there is a prayer in the AA 12 and 12 or the big book, I put a little P in the margin with a little box around it for, for P for prayer. And I am somebody that really prays these prayers. And so... I the, the to me this that is this this is how I am growing in my trust with God. I am growing in my trust with God. And and of course doing the resentments, you know, resentments. It's following the instructions, I think these principles work.
2: That's all.
0: Thank you, Susan, for the question. And we'll take one final question this morning. Anyone else?
2: Fuji? Go ahead, Susan. Hi, it's Suji from Southeastern Pennsylvania, a recovered member of the fellowship. I want to thank you for your service. Thank you so much, Mary. I mean, the honesty, openness, and willingness of your share blows me away. And uh, if you think you're not... Self-disciplined. Well, <laughs> I sure think you're self-disciplined. Um, I have a, a question, and I and I have no expectation about your even answering this question because it's nosy of me in, at a certain level. But I'm also really asking for your experience, strength, and hope. I heard you about that psychodrama of your your um, funeral, and I heard you say that. There was a little sister twenty years younger, and that that made you cry. Now, I have no idea if there really was a little sister or not but but if there is um and please feel free to not answer the question at all but if if there is, um how has your relationship with that person changed in in your recovery? Thanks I pass,
1: thank you, Susie. Well, one thing I want to make one thing that you said at the beginning of what you shared, Susie, is I don't think that I'm self-disciplined. What I what I have done is I have let God discipline me, the way it says in the Big Book. You know, we let God discipline us, and and um, I am not self-disciplined. I am disciplined because of uh, accountability to other people and and God, <laughs> and that doesn't mean that, that that I don't want to do these things. Where I where I started out today. I'm um, so I'm going to address this first. You know, we we you know I have two. I have, every day I have two choices to make. You know, do I want to live in the in the pain of of disease, whether it be in the food or or even you know just craziness, or do I want to live you know in in recovery? And um, it says you know this we did because we honestly wanted to and we willing to make the effort. I I honestly want to do the disciplined things that I do today, but not every day. You know, some days I don't want to. I don't want to. Some days I'm like, oh, my God, I have to do this again? You know, like, I'm tired. I have a whole, full life. I don't want to do this. but But I have an accountability. And I get the results because of the accountability that I have. And because I'm willing to do it, I am willing to make the effort today. But self-discipline, I don't have a lot. I need other people. I need other people. I cannot do this alone. So I just wanted to say that. And and um, I want to today, and I'm willing to make the effort because of the results I get. Now, regarding my little sister, my little sister is, yes, I have a little sister. Her name is Jenny, and and I was 20 when she was born. And we are the only two in my family who have... Like blonde hair, blue eyes, and this tiny, tiny little deformity of our um, left ear. We are the only two people in my family that have the identical thing. We are like twins twenty years apart. We were both not everybody, not every of all of my siblings are food addicts, but both and I both Jenny and I are and were we were both very obese as children. Jenny, when she was 13 years old, she weighed 326 pounds. She was heavier than I was at the time. And I am connected to her. It was like she's my daughter. I mean, I did pretty much raise her from my mom died when she was five, my dad died when she was 12. And um, we are very, very, very connected. She um, is she has sought recovery in OA some. She is um, pretty stable today. She doesn't work a twelve-step program, but she's pretty stable. She is a delight in my life. Um, I I have a very we have a very close relationship. She lives in Seattle, and I'm in Florida, and um, but we have a close relationship, and 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 she is um, she is a dear to me. So I don't think that's I, I'll answer just about anything. So. <laughs>
0: Thanks. Thank you, Suji, for the question. And, of course, Mary, thank you so much for your time and your service to all of us on the line this morning. Thanks again to Rasha, Barbara, Haya, Liz, Kathy, and Susan and Suji for all the questions this morning. And I'm going to close the meeting in the way that a vision for you always closes its meetings. And that's from page 164 in our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got